This morning, uh, we're going to be continuing in the series that Pastor Nick started last week, Rejoicing in Reform. Reforming according to the Word of God, meaning making changes that align us more with Scripture. And, and that's something that we should rejoice in. And it's something that will always need to be done in varying degrees, whether individually... I'm going to move this and see if maybe that helps some of the reverb. It might not. Nope, that's worse. Okay. So reforming individually and corporately as a church is something that will always need to be done until a Christ returns, until the parousia. So as you know, and that's what we've been talking about in Luke's Gospel, that's where we ended, uh, talking about Christ's return. So this idea of reforming and rejoicing in reform is something that people individually and corporately as a church will always do until Christ comes again. And as you know, though, this year is a special time for uh, concerning reform. It is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. This event in which Bible-believing Christians ended up separating from what we now call the Roman Catholic Church because the church had become, by and large at that point, very unbiblical, very, very corrupt. They were teaching another gospel, a gospel that is no gospel at all, one which isn't good news. And these reformers, these brothers and sisters, they tried for a long time to reform the church from within, to, to get the church to come to agreement on key matters, to, to offer repentance so that we could all move forward united as one body proclaiming the gospel. But over time it became clear that that wasn't able to happen. And so this event that we remember in history as the Protestant Reformation took place and we view it uh, as beginning on October 15, or 31st in 1517. Um, and we should rejoice, actually, that, that these brothers and sisters had the courage to do so. It came at a, at a high price, church. There was a lot of blood spilled over this right to worship God according to what His Word says over and opposed to the traditions of man which contradicted His Word. For them to be able to do that, many of them had to die. It took a lot of courage and faith on their part, and we too are blessed by it as well. If they hadn't done it, this church that we are here together as a family and many other Protestant churches throughout the world would not exist. If God did not raise up these reformers that we're looking at and others like them in this time period. Uh, so it's something that we should rejoice in. Because now we, we greatly benefit by being able to worship God according to what His Word says. So, what I'm going to speak about this morning, uh, today in this series, is this. The God Who Justifies. Subtitled, Addressing the Principal Matter in Rome's Apostasy. We'll be in Romans 1, so you could turn there in your Bible if you like now. But before we get to that, we're going to talk a little bit about one of these reformers that we've been assigned. Uh, Pastor Nick chose four reformers to look at specifically, and the one that we're going to be looking at this morning is the life of Martin Luther. And I'll, I'll just be elaborating on some of the things that Nick had mentioned last week, really. Uh, let's bring up that title screen on the, once again, just so we can see who it is that Luther is. So... Luther is this guy on the next screen. There's four guys there. That's Luther, Tyndale, John Knox, and John Calvin. Luther is this next screen that we have. There he is. That's not me. I'm not Luther. Yeah. <laughs> I shaved, so maybe a little bit. Yeah. Um, now, Martin Luther, just like the three other men that are in that picture that is on our, our graphic for the series, he was not a perfect man. Certainly, 
as Baptists, we would disagree with him about some very important areas of doctrine. Further, there is some controversy surrounding him and some of his works. And we're not going to get into those things this morning, but we should know one thing about all of that. Just like anyone who is saved, he too was a sinner saved by grace. He wasn't a perfect man. He had, I'm sure, sin in his life. There are, there are things that we would look at from our place in history, looking back at him and be like, man, I can't believe that happened like that. And it's hard because I don't know that we truly understand the whole situation that it was like for them in that time period. But one thing is certain. We all have sin in our lives. We're all sinners saved by grace. And if it not for the grace of God, we would be utterly lost, just as Martin Luther would have been as well, too. He was a bold man. That's certain. And it is often bold men that history remembers. So... In no way do we, do we worship Martin Luther or the rest of these reformers. That's not what this is about this morning and these upcoming weeks. We don't worship these guys at all. We don't venerate them or lift them up to a higher status. We praise God for the grace that God gave them in their lives and the ways in which God used them. And we count on and we depend upon the grace of God to work in our lives in a similar manner. Now, again, it's 2017 this year, but 500 years ago, back in 1517, Martin Luther, the German theologian and monk, nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg a list of 95 complaints or contentions against the church. It's known as the 95 Theses, and we recognize that act as the start of the Protestant Reformation. But we, we shouldn't think that that was the first event in this matter. There were brothers before Martin Luther who sought to bring reform to the church, and they influenced Luther in his doctrine. When he became a part of the church, and he started to learn the original languages and read the Bible um, in the language that God gave it, because before it was translated into, into Latin, and that had become corrupt over the ages. He started learning things that, you know, the common man didn't. And there were people in the church before him that helped him to know these things. Some of their names we don't know. Some of the names we do know. But this past October, I was sharing on our Facebook page a number of different articles of people who were influential in the Reformation. Some of them are brand new to me as well. And you can go back on our Facebook page and look at some of these people. It's really interesting things. But one thing is certain, we should know that it's not like... Martin Luther came on the scene, and then that changed everything. There were, God was giving grace to people in the church before that that led up to Luther and what happened with him in 1517. Also, it's not like on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther became a Christian. You know, that happened actually 12 years prior, and it's, it's interesting what God used to bring that about. Martin Luther was a, he's a brilliant man. I, I think I read that he obtained his master's degree in one year's time uh, at the age of 17. But he was studying to be a lawyer. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. And he was going, he had went home on a break from school, and then he was going back to the university. And on his way back, there was a, a massive storm. And then during this storm, he's on horseback. During the storm, a lightning bolt strikes down near to Luther, and his horse throws him off. And it, it terrified him. Um, it was it's amazing because the Lord used this storm to, to bring about a change in Martin Luther's life. It was a time in which he met the Lord Almighty. In his autobiography, uh, we read that he was terrified of death and divine judgment in that moment. And in that moment, in typical... Uh, fashion for the, the church of that culture. He didn't cry out to God. 
he cried out to Saint Anna, and he asked her to, uh, to save him, to have him be saved. And if he would, if the Lord would save him, that he would become a monk. He would abandon his pursuit of getting a law degree, and he would become a monk. And the rest of the story is, is obviously history. He, you know, he didn't die that night. And it's interesting because, um, you know, he, he would later... We could see that he was very much entrenched at that point with the what we would call now Roman Catholic doctrine. But over time, he would learn that there is no there is no merit to praying to saints. When he cried out to Saint Anna, it's not like a saint heard him and then provided this pardon for him. And he would eventually, you know, learn that over time as he went through a personal reform, fueled by the study of God's word and also by listening to teachers and preachers. And I, I might add, church, that that is where our personal reform comes as well. It's through the studying of God's Word. Our personal reform doesn't come by, you know, having quiet times. It doesn't come by getting out into nature. It doesn't come by taking a break from things. Our personal reform comes th through studying God's Word, through listening to biblical teaching and preaching, and through the observance of the means of grace, the holy ordinance ordinances. It is through those things that the Holy Spirit works in our life and brings about reform in us, brings us more into alignment with the Word of God. And all, that all happened for Luther leading up to the event of October 31st in 1517. He was experiencing a lot of change in his life. It's not like he just had this epiphany on October 31st and then boom, that happened. These things were changing gradually over time. But why October 31st? What happened in that year that caused him to do that? Well, in 1516, a Dominican friar by the name of Johann Tetzel was sent to Germany to raise money through the offering of the indulgences for specific for the specific purpose of constructing St. Peter's Basilica, which, by, by the way, still stands today in Vatican City as a, as a monument to the heretical teaching that was taking place at that time. So, what is an indulgence? Well, it is a grant by the Pope of the remission of the temporal punishment in purgatory still due for sins. So it's, it's a certificate that you could actually get. Sometimes they would be signed by the Pope. They were pre-signed or sealed. And people could um, obtain them. And by obtaining them in a special way, I'll mention what that is in a moment, they would have their, t their time in purgatory shortened or a family member's time in purgatory shortened. Uh, they were being sold in a deceptive way. The, the church wouldn't just come in and say, hey, you know, spend this amount of money and get this much time out, out of purgatory. They wouldn't frame it like that. They framed it in what's called the giving of alms. In other words, taking a, a donation up. And so you could you know, give a donation to something that the church would do, and then you would get this indulgence. And you would have, you know, then merit before God, before you, because of this indulgence that you gave. You know, it is, it is blatant works righteousness. And it certainly puts the rich at an advantage over the poor. If you had a lot of money, you were able to donate more. You were able to give more alms. If you were poor, 
you kind of were stuck. You couldn't give alms in the way that somebody who was wealthy was able to. And, and that, mind you, that's something the gospel never does. The gospel never separates us into classes of people. There's only, according to God's word, according to the gospel, there is two kinds of people. There are people who are saved and united to Christ, and there are people who are not saved and who need salvation. There's no advantage between financial differences in the gospel. It's for all people, rich or poor, as we'll see in our text soon. And this brings us to October 31st, in, uh, or October in 1517. You see, Tetzel had been in the area for about a year uh, selling these indulgences or collecting uh, offerings for these indulgences, I should say. But the Sunday before October 31st, a homily was, was given to the church. A homily was a, a special speech, basically. It's kind of like a sermon, is what a homily is. And back then, in, in the 16th century, it wasn't very common for when the church to gather, they wouldn't hear homilies very often. They would only hear them like on Lent and Easter, you know, huge, big church calendar days like that for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, what would typically happen on the Lord's Day is the people would gather for a Mass, and they would go through the rituals that, that they normally do on the day, and then they would go home. But on this Sunday before October 31st, October 31st in 1517 was a Saturday. November 1st was a Sunday. Uh, if you could you know, Google that and you could see that. But um, on this Sunday before October 31st, a homily was given. And in this homily, the priest spoke at length about purgatory. And he described dead relatives crying out in pain in purgatory. Uh, he described it in such a manner that the people were, were very much shook to their core. We, we read the historical account. Uh, some women were fainting. It was an intense homily that he gave about purgatory. So really quick, what is, what is purgatory? Well, that it is the false doctrine, meaning that it's not something that the Bible teaches. It's the false doctrine that says that every person who is trusting in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins must go to purgatory to have their sins purged from them. Purgatory. Their sins are being purged from them. You see, Christ's suffering then wasn't enough for them. And so believers, not unbelievers, only believers would go to purgatory. Uh, believers, before going to heaven, would spend time in purgatory to be made more righteous, to be more fully justified, if you will, before being able to enter heaven. Because apparently, for the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, Jesus' work didn't cover everything according to their tradition. There was still more that needed to be done by the individual. So, a homily was given that terrified the people. They had fresh in their minds that their loved ones were suffering in purgatory. And then the Monday following that Lord's Day, Tetzel strolls into town and he goes into the town square and he sets up a table there and he puts his books and a, a coffer, this, this big box that had three locks on it, we read. And he tells the crowds, he says, Friends of this town, you have heard now how your loved ones suffer in purgatory. You have heard their cries. The flames have reached up and licked your very own boots. Then he put a little rhythm to what amounts to a, a sales pitch, and he said, Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And he would repeat that, and Martin Luther heard it. And so this already burdened people is now being further manipulated by more false doctrine. This is what false doctrine does, friends. It burdens you. 
it manipulates you. It abuses you. It takes advantage of you. It places a heavy burden on us that we cannot bear. And ultimately, it will kill us. But praise the Lord because Christ comes in the gospel and he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will, give in, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's because he carries the burden all himself. He doesn't put burden on us to save ourselves. But Tetzel and Rome were putting a massive burden on the people to be yoked with this synergistic system of salvation put forth by Rome that Pastor Nick mentioned last week. Um, it, it was, there was already a deadly burden on these people, and, and Tetzel, through the commission of the Pope at that time, was making that worse. And so it was this series of events that ultimately led Martin Luther to pen the 95 Theses, which for us now marks the start of the Protestant Reformation. But, but the question we should ask is, what's at the root of this practice of, of these practices of indulgences and purgatory. Certainly, the interpretation of Scripture is there. You know, how are we interpreting Scripture that we would come to these conclusions? That's a problem that we could address about that. But it gets deeper than that. What's at stake here with these things is what we call the doctrine of justification. In other words, how is it that we are declared righteous? That's what it means to be justified. To be justified in God's sight means to be declared righteous. And so this question during the Protestant Reformation, and for us now still as well, you know, are we, are we justified by faith alone, or do we somehow contribute to that justification? That is still an important question. That is still a question upon which everything hinges and everything matters. Do the works of Christ alone merit salvation for all who believe, or must we do works that are instrumental in our salvation as well too? Not responsive, but instrumental. This question was the principal matter in Rome's apostasy, and Rome still answers it wrongly. Luther made his famous comment at, that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. In other words, for Luther, this doctrine of justification is the most important thing that we could talk about among Christians. Uh, John Calvin, who, were, who, who we will hear about in the coming weeks, he was a contemporary of Luther, came a little bit after him. He added a different metaphor, saying that justification is the hinge upon which everything turns. So you can imagine a door, Christianity is this door upon which everything turns. Justification is the hinge upon which all that turns. So we're going to understand this doctrine of justification from a, hope to understand this doctrine of justification, from a passage that was instrumental in Luther's understanding this rightly. So we'll read, if you're, if you're there in Romans 1, we'll read the word of the Lord beginning at verse 16 in Romans 1 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is perfect as you are perfect. It came from you. And since you are perfect, therefore your word 
uh, must be perfect as it represents you. And so we thank you for preserving it for us. As we think about the Reformation, and we know that we wouldn't even have the word in our own language, in our own hands, as freely as we do if it wasn't for your grace in that time period. So we ask, Lord, that you would also give us grace this morning, that we might understand what your word says, that we might glorify you how you desire to be glorified, for you are worthy of all glory. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so... Verse 16 uh, says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Meaning, it is God's power to convert people to faith and it means that it is God's power to bring those who keep on believing to everlasting safety and joy in the presence of God. In other words, to eternal life. So you see, it's, it's all encompassing. Sometimes we might think that, oh, the gospel is just something that you need the first time you're saved. I just need to hear it that one time so that I can be saved and that I can become a part of God's family. That's not what Paul means here in, in the Bible and in Romans and throughout the Bible. It's, the gospel is much more than that. It is the, the entrance into fellowship with God and it is the means by which God keeps us in communion with Him as well too. It preserves us. Um, it's all encompassing from start to finish. So the gospel is the power of God for a salvation and Paul wasn't ashamed of that. He depended upon that. But let's think of this in a few categories. First, you know, why is this good news? Why, why do we need salvation? Salvation from what? What's, what's the problem that we all have? Well, the answer in the book of Romans might not be one that, that we expect. What Romans' answer is, is that we need to be saved from the wrath of God. Look at Romans 1.18. It's the next verse right there in, after 17. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, so this is given as the reason as to why we need saving, saving. God is very angry at our unrighteousness and the way that we suppress and distort the truth in ungodliness. In the, um, the children's catechism that I use with, with my children, the question is posed, you know, is God pleased with those who do not love and obey Him? And the answer it gives is a biblical one. You could maybe try to school them on this. They're shy, but you could ask them. They should know uh, what the answer to this, that question is. The answer is no. God is angry with the wicked every day. As Romans 1.18 says, you know, His wrath is revealed in heaven against them. Or look in the next chapter. In my, in my Bible, I don't have to even turn the page. Chapter 2, verse 8. There it is written. It says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteous, unrighteousness. Notice that's the same two words that are used in 17 and 117. They're not obeying the truth. They are seeking after unrighteousness. It says, For those there will be wrath and fury. Wrath and indignation from God will follow. And it's His righteous judgment, church. So this is our problem. God is furious, He is indignant and wrathful toward us in our unrighteousness and our untruthfulness. This is what we need saving from in the end. This is our ultimate problem. The display of God's wrath that righteously casts us into hell. If you were to ask the book of Romans, you know, what, what do we need to be saved? The answer comes back, you know, yes from sin, right? Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Uh, yes, yes from guilt. 
Yes, from disunity. Yes, from broken relationships, bad relationships. Yes, from destructive habits and, and harmful ways. But mainly the answer is this. We need to be saved from God's wrath. Our ultimate problem, though very few today see this problem, is that we are sinners in the hands of, an, of a holy, all-knowing, angry God. And this anger, of course, is not sin. This anger is a display of his perfect, eternal righteousness. It is a display of his holiness. If he did not have this anger against ungodliness and unrighteousness, we would not be able to call him a holy and righteous God. So the gospel is mainly the good news that God himself has rescued us from the wrath of God. Not mainly from ourselves and the mess that we make of our lives, and mind you, we do make a mess of our lives. Certainly we do. But mainly, we are saved from his own anger and his own righteous judgment. The, the gospel is the power of God for salvation from the wrath of God to all who believe. Perhaps it is most clearly seen in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. You can underline this in your Bible. Romans, this idea that we're being saved from the wrath of God is most clear here. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, speaking of Jesus, much more shall we be saved from him, the wrath of God. So in the end, salvation is about the glory of God and having the wrath of God turned away from us. And not just simply turned away from us and neglected, but turned away from us and put on to another. And in that, he becomes a father to us. We become his children, his, his daughters, his sons. And he becomes a friendly king. And, and the wrath is not given to us. We're no longer enemies. So when verse 16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation, it means that the gospel is God's power to rescue believers from the wrath of God, or said another way, from the righteous judgment of God. Now, how does the gospel save those who believe? That's probably our, our most important question for us tonight. That's, you know, back to what Luther said, the doctrine of justification is the foundation upon which the, the church stands or falls. This question, how does the gospel save those who believe, is addressing that matter. How, how is the gospel God's power for salvation? And the answer to this question sets true Christianity apart from every counterfeit. And the answer is given in verse 17. And I, I'm gonna, we're going to hopefully try to understand this uh, from a negative light. What I want to do is something that, that I think is helpful in helping us understand what the Bible says. Uh, and you could do this in a number of different ways in different places. But what I first want to look at is to say, to translate this passage incorrectly to a way that is especially very common for the church today. So first we'll offer an incorrect translation of what verse 17 says, and then we'll follow that up with a correct translation. So let's, let's read it incorrectly. And hopefully, again, this will drive home the force of what is actually being said. Uh, so verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And 17, for in it the love of God is revealed from faith to faith, the righteous, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that's not what it says, but that's where the emphasis for many of us falls when we think about the gospel today. 
you know, on, on love. The gospel is good news, we say, because in it the love of God is revealed. And that's, that's not a false statement, by the way. Of course, that is a, that is a true statement. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, is, that too is gospel. That is good news as well. The gospel of Jesus is a demonstration and a revelation of the love of God for sinners. But that's not what verse 17 says. That's not the point there. Why could the love of God not be the reason, though? Well, for one, the love of God doesn't lack justice. If God is righteous, and He is righteous, he cannot just sweep under the, the rug the unrighteousness of man and the wrath of God and pretend that all is well. God doesn't just wink at sin and ignore it and let it pass as if it never happened. The love of God had to deal with man's unrighteousness and it had to deal with God's righteousness and his wrath. The love of God is not just a sentimental thing that can say, oh, you know, I, I feel nice to you now, so I, I love you now, and I'll be nice to you. If that were true, the, the book of Romans would have been a lot shorter than it is. In fact, the whole Bible would be a lot shorter than it is. We could have skipped the gruesome story of the death of the Son of God. The love of God is full of wisdom and a love full of truth and justice. It is a love that upholds all the other attributes of God. You know, God is love, we read in 1 John. And it, so it upholds all the other attributes rather than canceling them out. His justice remains. His holiness remains. His wrath remains. The love of God is worked out wisely and legally and justly and truthfully. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is suppressed. It takes our unrighteousness and God's righteousness into, into account. And then it deals with them in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. How it does that is much of what the Bible is about. So the Apostle Paul must want Christians to understand how they will be saved from the wrath of God. He must want to know that it's more than just God loves us and he sent Jesus to die for us. But, you know, unfortunately, that's where a lot of gospel presentations start and stop in our culture today. So why do, I, why do I stress this? I stress it because it is simply unbiblical that so many Christians today have a weak grasp, a weak understanding of what our human condition is without the grace of God. How God planned our redemption, what God did in Christ to save us, and how the Holy Spirit worked in us to convert us. And how it is that He keeps us and purifies us and fits us for heaven. And when we are in error about these things, we end up getting the doctrine of justification wrong. That happened with Rome. But, but these are the things that the New Testament is at pains to teach Christians. It's happening today in other ways as well, too. But that's what happened with Rome and how they ended up getting justification wrong. It's stunning how many professing Christians simply don't care to know these things or simply don't care to study these things. They're happy to say, God loves everyone, and then just leave it as that. You know, God won't judge you. Just, just be a nice person. That is the, the general uh, direction that we hear from what is popular Christianity. It's, it's not Christianity. So I'm stressing that in verse 17. Instead of saying, God saved us by His love, and that's all you need to know, Paul begins to explain to us how it is the gospel saves believers. He does not just say it shows us the love of God, 
He gets inside the love of God and shows us how God deals with the real problems of the universe. We begin to learn what the real issues that mankind in this universe has. And they're deeper than we think they are. People are dead in sin. Romans 8 says that we are enmity with God, meaning that we are at war with Him. It says the carnal mind cannot please God, nor does it even seek to, nor does it even desire to. The mind that is dead in the flesh, that is dead in sin, doesn't even seek to please God. There exists a suppression of truth and a deep unrighteousness in the heart of lost men, and there is only one power in the universe that can overcome those things. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's not ashamed of it. It is the one thing that can overcome the deadness of the human heart. And starting at verse 17, Paul moves inside the love of God and inside the gospel to show us how it is the gospel is that kind of power. And he writes this way because we as Christians, we need to know these things. We're not asking you to take a course in theology, although of course you know, we, would, we would love it if you did, to care deeply about doctrine and theology, to get to know the Lord. The more that we know the Lord, the more our faith increases. But we're not asking you to do that right now this morning. I'm asking you to read and care about the inspired Word of God in Romans 1.17. Christ sent His Apostle through the Holy Spirit to teach us how the Gospel saves believers and then brings them safe to heaven. So this is what we are going to want to know when it really matters, beloved. When the doctor says, we've done all we can do, and now all you have, um, or, and then you ask, well, how long do I have? And he says, you have you know, two weeks. You have one week. And then you're face to face with the maker and the judge of all the universe who is infinite in holiness and he's unswerving in justice. Beloved, this is what you're going to want to know. So I urge you, church, to get serious about growing in the knowledge of God and how he saves the unrighteous and to reform in this area if that's needed. Reform isn't a bad thing. Remember, the title of the series is Rejoicing in Reform. It hurts sometimes, as Pastor Nick mentioned last week, but it is, a, it is a blessing when the Holy Spirit convicts us and works in us in that manner. So this morning, would you ask this question with me? How does, how does the gospel save believers? How does the gospel bring us from death to life? And when what we really deserve is God's wrath, which verse 18 says is already being poured out from heaven. How will the gospel triumph in those crucial moments in your life and come to your rescue and to save you from despair and terror and to bring you home to God? The answer of verse 17 is this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, here's the puzzle. How can this be good news when the righteousness of God is our problem? How can the righteousness of God be our good news when it's the righteousness of God which is causing His wrath to be revealed from heaven? We know what we are. We're unrighteous apart from His grace. His wrath is being revealed against the unrighteous of man. Martin Luther, when he approached this passage, he writes in his autobiography, or it's written about him, um, he says about 117, he says, I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But a single word in chapter 1, verse 17. 
in it the righteousness of God is revealed, stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. So this, this passage, 117, for Martin Luther, when he started studying this, was a stumbling block for him. How can he, an unrighteous man, find hope in the righteousness of God? So how is this good news, that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? Well, here's the answer. God demands righteousness, and we do not have it. So the only hope for us is that God himself would give us the righteousness that he requires. That would be good news. That would be gospel. And that's what he does. What is revealed in the gospel is that the righteousness of God for us is that he demands from us. That that's the righteousness that he gives to us. The reason the gospel is the power of salvation, the way the gospel saves believers, is that in it, God reveals a righteousness for us that God demands from us. What we had to have but cannot create, supply, or perform, God gives us freely, namely, His own righteousness, the righteousness of God. It's an alien righteousness, meaning it doesn't originate, originate in us. He gives it to us by Christ, and He declares us righteous on Christ's account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about it. We call it the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So all of our sin for all of Christ's righteousness. He, Jesus on the cross, was a substitute for us. And on the cross, remember I said earlier that God doesn't just take that wrath and put it under a rug. He turns it to another. On the cross, Jesus was taking the wrath of God for all those who would believe so that God's holiness and righteousness would still be maintained. But Luther struggled there coming out of this Roman uh, system. You know, it, it doesn't, righteousness doesn't originate in us. It doesn't depend on us to maintain it. And Luther struggled there. How could he maintain this righteous standard? And the answer is, he couldn't, and we can't. So, you, so for him, you know, he would need mass, and then purgatory, and then to, to, to give alms, and receive indulgences, and on and on. But that's not what the Bible says. This is how the gospel saves us from the wrath of God. You see in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what is our rescue? What is our hope to escape this wrath when we are ungodly and unrighteous? The answer is that God would intervene and supply us with a righteousness that is not our own. He doesn't infuse this righteousness into us and then we have to somehow keep it and maintain it. He imputes it to us. He declares that we are righteous, that we are justified based on what Christ has done that He would give to us the righteousness that He demands from us through faith. If God would do that, then His wrath could be averted and we could be reconciled to Him. And that is, in fact, what He did there on the cross and what He does through the conversion of sinners. And that is the gospel. That is the way that it saves us. The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes because in it, God offers to us what He demands from us, His very own righteousness. He reveals it in a gift. In, in Christ Jesus, what was once only a demand, 
This is how he saves in the gospel of, of Jesus' death and resurrection. God gives us the righteousness that he demands from us. That is how he declares us righteous, based upon the works that Christ did, not the ones we do. I know that we often, we often want to be very clear that we're not saved by works. And I want to be very clear by that as well, too. There is no work that you could do to save yourself. There's no work that I can do to save myself. There is no works that we have to do to maintain our salvation. But we are, in fact, saved by works. We are saved by Christ's works. He was faithful to the covenant that God had entered into with mankind. God the Son took on flesh. The eternal Word took on flesh and lived among us and was fully obedient to the law of God, never once sinning. We call it His active obedience, meaning He was obedient. He did something that we were supposed to do, but we couldn't do because we all died in Adam. Adam failed, whereas Christ, the second Adam, he succeeded. And then further, he also gives to us what is called his passive obedience, where it, is, where it is that he went to the cross and he, for no reason, because he was without sin, and he died, he took upon himself the wrath of God so that all who would believe in him would not perish and have eternal life, and that we would have his righteousness. The reason that any of us are able to be justified, church, is because Jesus is righteous. And God counts us righteous based upon what Christ has done. And, and that is evidenced through our faith in Him. And brothers and sisters, we must address the fact then that this Protestant Reformation isn't over. Truly, you know, the Protestant church itself is in need of reform today. I, I've read some things over the past few weeks that the Protestant church it might be in more trouble you know, theologically than the church was back in the 16th century. And, and I, that I think is an accurate statement. But something that we should also recognize is that the Protestant Reformation isn't over. There's still this division between Protestants and Rome today. And I, and I say this not lightly or not with a, not easily, because I love Roman Catholics. I, there are many people in my family that are Roman Catholic. As, as far as I could tell, going back multiple generations, everyone in my family was either Roman Catholic or, you know, not believing. There was, as far as I know, no one was trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And some of that has changed by God's grace, and I'm hopeful that more of my family will receive Christ. But even if they don't, God is still good. And even if they don't, I can't change my position on what the, the Roman Catholic Church thinks. And neither can we as a church. But that's what kind of is being said today. You know, the, the Reformation didn't matter. You know, we're all one now. That, that's not true. The Reformation is not over. The Reformation was not an instance of unhealthy schism but it was a necessary reputation of an apostate church. There are, there are many unorthodox doctrines that they hold to, and we don't have time to go into all of those this morning, but just, just one. On this past Reformation Day, uh, Pope Francis tweeted, he has a Twitter account, you could, you could follow him there if you wanted to. Um, I do, you know, just because I want to see what he says, because again, you know, I've got family members that are Roman Catholic. And anyways, on the, ref, on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, he only tweeted once, and all he said 
was may the Virgin Mary help us to take the first step each day in order to build peace in love, justice, and truth. That, that is a slap to the face of any informed Christian. Might Christ and Christ alone be glorified? Might we trust, might we look to Christ and Christ alone, not the Virgin Mary, not any other saint? But more than anything, Rome's principal error still exists. The Roman Catholic Church is opposed to being justified by faith alone. To this very day, from the time shortly after the Reformation, Rome taught that if a person believes that they are justified by faith alone, then that person is what's called anathema, meaning accursed, meaning that you're cut off from the chance of salvation. So according to the official, that, that came out in what's called the Council of Trent. After the Reformation happened, and there was you know, obviously now two churches, uh, there, there was the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, to Roman, you know, Roman Catholic Church is a way that we identify them. They would identify themselves simply as the Catholic Church. If you see a, a, a Roman Catholic Church, they don't say on them Roman Catholic Church. It just says, you know, St. Mary's Catholic Church or something along those lines. The word Roman Catholic Church came out as a way to identify the fact that they're a different sort of Catholic than we are. The Church of England actually wanted to retain the name Catholic because Catholic simply means Christian. It means like a group of gathered believers. And so they said, well, that's Roman Catholic, we're just Catholic. And so we today, you know, notify them as the Roman Catholic Church because of that. Because we, you know, if you're in this church and you're trusting in Christ, you are Catholic. If you're trusting in Christ, you're Catholic. Roman Catholic is something else. They are trusting in Christ plus your own works as evidenced by what the Council of Trent revealed about justification by faith alone. Again, the Council of Trent released a statement that said, if you believe that you are justified by faith alone, that you don't contribute to your salvation in any way, in other words, except for the sin that makes you needing salvation, that you are anathema, you are accursed, you are cut off from the possibility of salvation. So the Reformation is still needed. It is still going on. Roman Catholics are not our brothers and sisters. And again, I don't, I don't say that lightly because I know there are people in this room who have family members that are Roman Catholic. I, I like I was saying, my whole family, except for a couple now, all Roman Catholic or, or not believing in general. And, you know, in, if anyone in the Roman Catholic Church is actually saved, it's in spite of what that church teaches if they're truly saved. If they are, and if they are truly saved, if they're not cold or lukewarm, like Pastor Nick talked about last week, I would think that they would, we'd end up seeing them leave that church, right? Because how could you, how could you be on fire for the Lord and sitting there and, and taking part in things that have no biblical basis? And how could you, you know, consider yourself Roman Catholic, but don't go to Mass really, but then also don't go to another church as well, too. I don't understand how that would happen. It's a very serious matter. And I've said this before. I'm not sure if I've said it on a Sunday morning here with you all. But there is, there's one thing in this world that is worse than being lost. There's one thing worse than being lost. That is thinking that you're saved, but being lost. That's the only thing that's worse than being lost. Because if you're, remember last week, Pastor Nick was talking about if you're cold, you at least know it. And, and you know that, you know, that, hey, I'm not saved. But there are people out there who are, you know, lukewarm, who think that they are in the good grace of God and not under His wrath, but in reality, they're lost. And sadly, for what must be the vast majority of the Roman Catholic Church, that's the place they are in. 
because they're not trusting in Christ alone for every part of their salvation. So the Reformation is not over. But to close today, I want to go back to Martin Luther. Uh, maybe, maybe God will use his testimony to bring some of you from hearers this morning to those who love and live on this gospel reality of God's gift of righteousness. You remember he said, Martin Luther, that is, he said that he hated Romans 1.17, but he goes on explaining his struggle with his own guilt and his fear before the righteousness of God. He says, continue on, he says, Thus I rage with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that this righteousness of God, righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. You see, at that, at that moment, he got it. When he understood that it wasn't his righteousness that had to stand before a righteous God, but that it was that through faith he would have Christ's righteousness that enabled him to stand before this righteous God. He got it, and he was set free. That burden, that tetzel and, and Rome was put on the people, it wasn't for Luther. And he wanted many other people to know that as well, too. It's Christ's righteousness alone that justifies us. It's in that that we can have peace, in that that we can trust. And I, and I pray that you will find this verse a pathway to that very same peace, just like Martin Luther did.